You know, some people seem to have their lives all together. But the more I get to know people on a deeper level, the more I'm realizing that everybody is suffering to some degree or another. And some of us just are a little bit better at covering it up than others are. Suffering is all around us in so many forms. For some people, it's intensely physical. Their bodies feel it. Others are locked in a psychological battle in the mind. All of us may have experienced the difficulty of broken relationships which grieve our hearts. And they heap upon us guilt and shame and baggage that we carry with us throughout our life, making life much more difficult. And then we have the social media platforms which give us a lot of pressure to cover it all up. We have this illusion of so many friends, but we feel so isolated. We have thousands of online friends, but nobody that can relate with our pain. But it doesn't take much of reading or watching the news to find out that the rest of the world is quite messed up too. Mass shootings seem to be reported on a quarterly basis. Waves of abuse of authority hit the news on a periodic cycle, whether it's police jumping to conclusions or TV and movie stars preying on vulnerable women. Children starving around the world. Nations threatening wars with one another. Families fleeing their homes for refuge in unfamiliar countries. Fathers abandoning their family responsibilities. Children are slaughtered before they can ever take their first breath. Many people look at the state of the world and say, I could never believe in a God who would allow such suffering. And if we're all honest, even if we do believe in God, we've been in a place where we wonder, where is He? Why is this happening? That might not be the best place to dwell, but it is fruitful for us once in a while to ask ourselves, what did happen? What went wrong with the world? How did this world get so messed up? And do we have any hope that it will ever get any better? So before we try to answer some of those questions, let's go to God in prayer and offer up all of our pain to Him. God, I know many people in this room are experiencing various levels of suffering and pain and doubt and fear. Even in my own home, I can feel it every single week. The longing that we want for all things to be made new. God, give us hope. Give us joy this Christmas season. This is a season where we are to celebrate the coming of our King And yet we live in a world of tension between He has arrived and yet it's not complete. Would you give us hope that all things will be made new new soon? Give us hope this Christmas season and through whatever suffering we are experiencing, may we have joy and peace written on our faces that we can share it with the world trapped in darkness. God, bring your light to us now that we may take it with us when we leave. Amen. So today we're beginning a brief Advent service, or series, 
preaching series where we're going to spend some time building up to Christmas Day, the day we celebrate, finally, finally the Messiah has come. And the goal of these next few weeks is to build up this anticipation for Him to return by asking, why did He come? What did the Old Testament saints think He would be? And how can we create that same anticipation among ourselves here at Redemption City Church for Him to return again, that we would be led to worship when we see that Jesus fulfills all of our longings? And so this week, we begin right at the beginning of the world in the book of Genesis. And while our text today is set right at the beginning of all things, it's actually told from a perspective thousands of years later. When we read the book of Genesis, even though it starts at the beginning, it's helpful for us to remember that the book of Genesis is one part in a five-part book that the Jews called the Law, the Pentateuch. And that was given to them as they're entering the promised land as a guide for how they should live in this new land. Moses in Deuteronomy is giving them one final exhortation, go into the promised land, but remember, don't forget all the merciful and powerful things that God did in your past to bring you to this point. So, how did they get here? How did they get to this point? Entering the promised land. In their most recent history, Israel had just wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years of pain and suffering. 40 years of waking up every morning and gathering little flecks of bread off the ground in order to eat for the day. 40 years of wondering where is there water to drink. 40 years of judgment for failing to trust God where aunts and uncles, grandparents, mom and dad are falling, dropping like flies, dying as punishment for their faithlessness. How did they even get there? So Moses goes back from the book of Numbers through Leviticus and he gets to the book of the Exodus telling the story of how they were trapped in Egypt and God miraculously, powerfully freed them from Pharaoh. They were starved, beaten, and worked to death with no personal or corporate national identity. And God freed them from that, from an existence where their the only point, their only purpose was the pleasure of the Egyptian king. But how did they even get there? We go back to the book of Genesis where the patriarchs and their families Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, families filled with fighting and animosity and abuse. But even before that, people would try to proclaim themselves gods and rule over all things under their own power. Before that, the world got so wicked that God destroyed everything in a flood covering the entire earth. Everywhere Israel looks, suffering, evil, brokenness, despair, What happened? They're asking the same question entering the promised land that we still do today. But Moses begins all the way back at the beginning. He locates the source of all of this evil back in Genesis chapter 3, where it all started. This is where shame and guilt, selfishness, pride, arrogance, wickedness, pain, suffering, and death all got their beginning. 
He started in the first chapter of Genesis saying, God made everything and it was good. Look how creative God is. He's marvelously kind and He made everything and declared it very good. He was outside of creation, but He made it all so that He could have a special relationship with people who would be His special representatives on earth. They were to be people who rejoiced receiving from God and they were to make more people and have a lot of fun doing it. And then build this beautiful world for everyone to flourish in. But very quickly, that joyful existence faded into dark despair. And so today, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, I'll read the entire chapter. Genesis 3, verse 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the, any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I, I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise his heel. You shall bruise his heel. And the woman, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the goal of the message today, as I hinted in uh, introducing Advent for us, is to help us identify the source of the problem that we see all over the world, and then to identify ourselves with this intense longing to make it right again. There's a lot here in this chapter, in the beginning of Genesis, that we could spend a lot of time in, that would help us understand what's going on in the world, how the world was supposed to be. A lot of doctrines that we love find their start right here at the beginning of Genesis, But because this is Advent and a season of looking to our promised Deliverer, we will focus just on the hope for renewal. And to get there, we'll walk briefly through the text, the entire text, through four sections. In the first five verses, first we'll look at Satan's deception. And then in in verses 6 through 13 after that, we'll see the trial that God puts Adam and Eve on. And once he establishes guilt... In verses 14 and 19, God will pronounce judgment. And then right at the end, we'll find the hope that we all long for in verses 20 to 24. So there's four sections. First, the deception, and then the trial, and after that, judgment, and finally, we'll rejoice in hope. So let's look back up at the beginning of our text. The man and woman were naked and unashamed, said the very last verse of chapter 2. They were ignorant, really, and innocent, just living a life of wonderful bliss in the garden. And we're not told how much time had passed yet, but it doesn't seem like their joy had lasted very long before the serpent shows up. Verse 1, he says, it says that he is crafty. The word crafty here doesn't necessarily mean devious. We find out more Uh, later on in the Bible what Satan's intentions were, but the word simply means wise. It's a word that's often used in the book of Proverbs. But because he is one of God's most glorious creatures, he's quite wise, and Adam and Eve stand no chance against his wisdom. They were supposed to trust their father to provide everything for them, like little babies. Though they looked like adults, grown man and woman, they were brand new. They hadn't experienced life yet. They had no practical wisdom. But God, they were supposed to trust God to take care of them. And as they grew in their maturity, God would give them more and more good things. But Satan questions God's care for them. He begins his deception with Eve 
with just a question, a simple question to incite some doubt in her mind, and it's already working. He doesn't need to say much, but we can already see that before Eve even takes her first bite, she's already taken his bait. Notice what Eve says at the beginning of verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good, good for food. This is the first time that anyone but God sees something is good and declares that it's good. Multiple times in chapter 1, God declares or creates something and it sees it's good. He creates the light and he sees that it's good. He separates the waters and the land and he sees that it's good. Finally, he creates man and he sees it's very good. And now, Eve shows up and she's going to decide that something is good. God had told Adam, don't eat of this tree. He doesn't say why. Perhaps later on he would let them eat as they grew in their maturity. But right now, it won't be good for you to eat of this tree. But Satan suggests that God is hiding something from them. And Eve thinks that he might be right. So she pursues good apart from God's wisdom. Satan told them that they would know good and evil. Not once did they ponder, linger much on the idea of evil. They think about good. Ooh, I want more of that good. And when they sink their teeth into that, the only thing they end up knowing is evil. Together they eat the forbidden fruit and immediately everything spirals out of control. They had hoped that this good eating the fruit would bring them more life. Instead, it brings them shame. They hide from God. They are supposed to have this loving relationship with a father who constantly blessing them with good things. And instead, they're afraid of their father. And then even their one flesh union begins to unravel. Look at verses 8 through 13 then, where God confronts the man and the woman. Right when he asks them, what, what's going on here? They start pointing fingers. She did it. No, the serpent, he deceived me. No, you gave me that woman. Whenever we find ourselves pursuing happiness apart from God, our first response is to want to blame somebody else. Inevitably, pursuing life apart from God is going to fail, and when it does, Oh, it's the government's fault. Or, my parents, I had a rough childhood, so it's my parents' fault. It's society's fault. This world we live in just pressured me to do it. And when that doesn't work, then we blame God. God made me this way. I don't have a choice. That's an excuse as old as Adam. See how he answered in verse 12. The woman you gave me. It's the woman's fault. And really, it's your fault, God, for making making her and giving her to me. Adam's job was to guard the garden, to protect his wife. He should have seen Satan coming and said, get out of here. My job is to protect this garden. And then work with his wife to make it a beautiful place to flourish. And instead, they pursued foolishness, which leads to more self-deception. So it's interesting here then that in this section that God only asks questions. He never shows up and says, you did this. I saw you do it. He asks four questions to put Adam and Eve on the spot. That's not to suggest that God didn't really know what happened. It's not like he was a 
a father who left his kids to play and then went and stepped out of the room for a while, and then he comes back and says, what happened here? Who's responsible for this? Who's going to clean up this mess? No, God knows everything. He's, he made everything. He sees everything. That's what makes him God. So of course he knows the answers to these questions. So then why does he ask them? Because this scene isn't a scene where God's trying to figure out what happened. This is actually a court scene. Adam and Eve are on trial. They've been put on the witness stand, and God is going to ask them questions like a prosecutor and let their own statements condemn them. He's going to let the shame written on their faces, He's going to let their blame game bring them their guilt. And then finally, they admit. They both say, I ate. It's enough to convict them of their crime. So in verses 14 and 19, we move on to the judgment. And first, the serpent receives his sentence. Condemned to slithering around on the ground for the rest of his existence, licking up dirt, the snake is going to always be at war with the woman. Always be at war with her children. There's going to be rumors of wars and fighting for the rest of the time. Until one day the snake is finally defeated. But until that happens, there will always be war. There will be nations fighting with one another as we see in the news almost every day. Nations threatening to overcome one another. And with the fallout of all of their citizens suffering the consequences. And then the fallout for the woman comes in verse 16. The two things that were supposed to be the source of her greatest joy, bearing children, bringing life into the world, and this beautiful partnership with her husband, these are the focus of her punishment. Childbirth, this moment of joy, of life entering the world, will be filled with more pain than anything she'll ever experience. And that sweet relationship with her husband is going to be a constant battle Always, both of them fighting for authority over one another. Instead of a harmonious partnership of head and helper, there'll be battles for dominance. And look at it around the world today, and what do we see? Not only is childbirth itself painful, but the whole experience of trying to have children and raise children is filled with frustration and brokenness. Women unable to get pregnant, and some who do, killing their babies before they're born. Hospitals filled with suffering children everywhere. Entire wings filled with children who are near death. And what about the state of relationships between men and women? Divorce is common in our world. Men abusing women everywhere and women retaliating by trying to overcome every man, gaining the upper hand in every situation. These things which are supposed to be our greatest joys in this world are filled with pain. And Adam himself is not exempt. The joy of creating and cultivating in this world is replaced with bloody, sweaty, tearful work. 
His leadership is going to seem under constant attack. His work is going to feel fruitless and meaningless. Might as well just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's all vanity. And today we feel that as we think that pursuing our career goals is going to satisfy our longings for significance and we finally move up the ladder and we're left wanting. Or food. Food here is cursed too. Food was supposed to be a blessing. And now it becomes an idol. It's the thing we seek for comfort, for hope. And then it turns around and curses us again, making our bodies suffer more. Some people, food, the thing that they love so much, becomes the thing that makes their body hurt even more. Or even microphones make a lot of noise. So here we are at the beginning of the Bible and everything has already gone horribly wrong. Right at the beginning we see the source of all of our problems today. The root of all pain and suffering and death is trying to find good apart from God. Trying to find our happiness without God. You want to be like God, knowing good and evil? You're going to give in to the temptation of Satan? Then you're in for a rough bargain because without God, you're only going to experience evil and the good is going to feel like a distant memory the farther in you go without Him. But that's just the beginning of the story because God doesn't leave us. He doesn't cut the story off there. He doesn't just end it there. He doesn't leave us without hope. Right after God pronounces these horrible judgments, He begins to work to turn things around again. There are hints now of redemption coming. We've identified the source of our misery, but we don't need to wallow in it anymore. We don't need to just give in and say, it's all vanity. We can move on to the hope of this Advent season in verses 20-24. through So here we'll look at, we'll finish up here with the three grounds that give us hope this Advent season. Three things that God put right there at the beginning that we can celebrate today as we rejoice in the coming of our Savior. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. When I was reading the text, it felt to me like quite an abrupt transition. You got all of this, these lists of punishments, of judgments, and then stop. Adam calls his wife's name Eve. That's kind of bizarre. This thing is uh, a little frustrating. It's going to make. Now I can't move my arms. (laughs) Okay. So we're looking at verse 20, and we have this abrupt statement that suddenly Eve is called, or Adam calls his wife's name Eve. How do we transition from this judgment, this suffering, this pain that results, and oh yeah, she's the mother of all living. I think that 
We're meant to be jarred by this because we would be wallowing. We would sit there seeing those judgments and we want to just stop and quit and throw up our hands and say, what's the point? Why even continue if that's the way the world's going to be? And he transitions to give us hope by saying, he called his wife Eve. He had just said in the previous verse in 19, to dust you shall return. You're going to die. And then the very next verse, he says, but life will go on. The name Eve comes from the Hebrew word for life. God had told them before, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And now he says, but Eve is the mother of all living. There is still a seed of hope. Look at verse 15. This verse is often called the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. The offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent even while he bruises his heel. God is not finished. One day, a son of Eve is going to come along and reverse the curse. He's going to destroy the serpent, defeat death, and turn things around, begin a process of restoring all things. That's what we get to celebrate at Christmas. The restoration has begun. Jesus is the promised seed. We saw a couple weeks ago, Jesus shows up for His baptism and inaugurates a new creation. He's starting it all over. It's going to be marvelous. And just like Adam and Eve faced temptation, last week Jake showed us how Jesus Himself faced temptation. He took on Satan head to head like Eve did, but He remained faithful to the Father. On the cross then, Though the serpent struck a blow to his feet, he pierced his feet to the cross. That piercing delivered the final blow to the serpent's head. God keeps his promises. Hallelujah! God is closer now to removing all of the suffering than he has ever been before. Adam and Eve were in despair. What's the point? The preacher of Ecclesiastes says it's all vanity. And now Jesus came and we get to plant our flag in Christ and say He has come. He's making all things new. Let's move on to verse 21 for more exciting hope. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The two were ashamed of themselves. They, they knew they did something wrong. They knew they disappointed their father. And so right away, they recognize their shame and they grab leaves off the tree and try to make their own garments. But God says, that's not good enough. Your sin is far worse than a leaf can cover. God needed to provide the covering. It's interesting to look at these first couple chapters then and trace the relationship with Humanity and trees seems rather insignificant. You read over those things quickly. But let's take a look. In the first chapter, God had made all of these trees and then put Adam and Eve among them and gave them every tree in the garden as a source of food. They were a sign of God's loving, bountiful provision. Look at everything I've done for you. You get to explore this world, enjoy this world. But then there's another tree that becomes the source of their doubt and temptation. And when they give in to Satan's deception, then they try to hide themselves in more trees. 
They try to hide, find cover under the trees, but that wasn't good enough cover. God had to provide an animal covering for them. He, they deserve to die. But instead, God mercifully kills an innocent animal to take the fall. And yet thousands of years later, the seed of the woman would come along and be a more perfect, innocent sacrifice. And he would hang on a tree. This cross of wood becomes a new tree of life. If you want to enter the garden again, you must eat the fruit of this tree and find your covering on the shed blood of Christ on this cross. And He did that. So covered in that, we can return to the garden. Look at verses 22-24. through God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. This seems like a rather crummy thing to do at first. I read that and I go, well, you just pronounced all these judgments on them. Couldn't you at least let them stay in this beautiful garden so that it won't be so bad? God says in verse 22, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he kicks them out of the tree so they won't live forever. Get out of here so you go die. But keep looking and there's seeds of hope here as well. God just pronounces these horrible consequences for their foolish disobedience. And as we experience, as we all know, looking around the world, this is really bad. It is horrible. These judgments hurt, but it could be far worse. We could live in this misery forever if we ate of the tree of life. So God mercifully casts them out of the garden so that they could mercifully die and maybe later something good could happen to restore all things. Pay attention here to the direction that God sends them. He casts them out and sets up a gate on the east side of the garden. If you track the eastward direction through the Bible, you'll find out that east is the direction away from God's presence. East is where Sodom and Gomorrah are. East is where Babylon is. Every time they moved the tabernacle and set it back up, it faced east. When they built the temple, it always faced east. I don't know which way east is. I keep turning one way. If you wanted to turn, go to the temple and visit God, you had to turn your back on the east. Turn from sin, turn from temptation to come into God's presence. But then you're faced with a gate, with angels guarding the way. In the temple, there's a curtain, and embroidered on the curtain are giant angels guarding the way to God's presence. Inside the Holy of Holies are giant golden angels saying, you may not enter here. Sin is not allowed in God's presence. But one day God will open His presence, access to His presence again. Once He finally takes care of our sin problem and He crushes the head of the serpent and covers our sin, then we can return into His presence And there in Matthew 25, verse 71, right when Jesus dies on the cross and he holds out, his arms are spread and he drops his head and gives up his spirit, we are told that the curtain is torn in two. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross was the crushing blow to the serpent so that we could finally enter in to God's presence again. The angels are no longer guarding the path. 
All who are covered in Christ's blood are allowed to re-enter the garden. Remember a few weeks ago when we were looking at Matthew 2 and the arrival of the Magi, the wise men. These, we see in nativity scenes now all over the place these three characters who are bringing wonderful gifts, expensive gifts to the baby king. We sing this song, We Three Kings, bearing gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But those guys aren't an insignificant detail. Which direction did the wise men come from? They came from the east. The east. The visit from the wise men signaled a return to the garden. In this baby born in a feeding trough in the little town of Bethlehem would come the cure to all of our problems so we can return to the garden. When you see a nativity scene and see those three wise men rejoice that they are ushering the way back to the garden with our Savior. In Christ, we are a new creation. In Him, we will withstand temptation. In Him, we will find the covering for our sin. In Him, God welcomes us back in. We return from the east into His presence. And one day, Jesus is going to return and take us personally right into the garden and hand us the fruit from the tree of life where we will finally be able to live forever with happiness and no suffering. So whatever suffering you're experiencing this Christmas season, whatever disappointments this time of year brings you. Join me. Help me. Look with me to Christ as the one who is beginning a new creation, making all things new, so that one day our joy may last forever in God's presence again. Amen. Let's pray. God, we want to experience that joy this Christmas season. Would you just for a moment just for a few weeks, just at least for this month, give us more taste of that new creation than we've ever had before. Lift the suffering, if just for a moment. Remove our disappointment. Take our discouragement and our despair. And shower upon us like a good father, like the good father that you are, marvelous gifts. For those who have lost loved ones, give them hope that maybe they will rejoice with them in the garden again one day. For those who desperately want children, would you give them that marvelous gift that they can rejoice with Eve that life goes on? God, heal our broken bodies. Give us these marvelous gifts that we would rejoice. We would be able to say, the new creation is here. The kingdom has come. All things are being made new. And our Savior is returning. God, give us that hope this Christmas season. Bring Him. The greatest gift would be to have Him return and end it all permanently with nothing left but joy forever. God, make that possible soon. And until then, help us to look forward to His return knowing that You will keep Your promises in Christ. Amen.